I'm also known as D, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. A joy to be with you this morning. Um, I saw this week, um, I'm assuming he's on every week. He's probably on multiple stations every week. But the travel guy, Rick Steves, and he was given some kind of great description of wherever he was at, looking at the ruins. And um, it just made me think not so much about the ruins, but that seems like a great job. Just to travel everywhere, record yourself, and then somehow make enough money to keep doing that. That's the part that I don't quite get, is how it transitions from recording yourself to making enough to just do that over and over again. But I would like this morning to be your travel guide. This is uh, my best shot at being Rick Steves. I'm going to give you travel advice this morning, and so I would like to take you on an adventure to a place that you can decide if it's worth planning a trip to or not. How you get there is relatively easy. You can, right here from San Diego, get on Interstate 8 and head east. Keep heading east through the southern portions of California. You will pass a number of places, um, including the Yuma Dunes, which are pretty wonderful to think that I don't know what you think when you go through. There's just a lot of sand there, but just keep going. Don't stop there. And eventually you'll come to Route 85. We'll take you, take you north up to Interstate 10. So take 85 north up to Interstate 10. Continue east. You haven't quite yet made it to Phoenix, but once you get into Phoenix, you have a couple of options because I want you to go north a little bit further. You can either take Interstate 17 out of downtown Phoenix and head north up into the higher elevations through a wonderful incline, or, and this is my preferred route, go through the Tonto National Forest on Route 87, angling up in the direction of um, Interstate 40, which is where you will eventually get. Once you've gotten to Interstate 40, through the Tonto National Forest, beautiful day or night, usually patches of... Uh, Snow, um, I'm sure that's not year-round, but uh, there is often snow going through that area. You'll come out on Interstate 40, continue east a few more miles. You'll come to the wonderful, incredible town of Holbrook. Apparently a couple people have been in Holbrook. Um, Holbrook um, would probably be a good place to spend the night if you've not stopped already. And if you're looking for a place to stay, you can actually spend the night in a teepee at the Wigwam Motel. The Wigwam Motel is a classic. You can find that in a number of lists of places to go. Um, they are not actually fabric wigwams. They are these little individual, I think made out of concrete, things to look like wigwams. They're actually one-room hotel rooms, and they have permanently in the parking lot Cars from, I think, the 1950s and 60s or 40s or whenever it was, permanently parked there, so you feel like you have gone back in time. I'm not even sure they've done anything to the rooms since the 1940s or 50s. So if you're looking for an elegant stay, that's probably not your place of choice. If you're looking for an interesting stay, it would qualify as very interesting. Um... The next morning when you get up, you would head about 15 miles east. You'll come to the southernmost entrance. 
of the petrified forest. Now, just that name conjures up wild thoughts of incredible adventure. Just this forest of of, um, uncertainty that strikes fear in the hearts of kids and brings out the bravest notions in adults as they try and act so brave going through this forest of mystique and, and draping canopies of foliage that engulfs you and begins to block out the sunlight, something out of a Harry Potter movie or some great novel that just conjures up everything you can imagine with that name, Petrified Forest. If you've been there, then you already know that if you've taken your kids to the Petrified Forest, at that moment, one of them will speak up and say, Dad, where are the trees? I don't see a tree anywhere. I don't even see bushes, Dad. And the thought comes across my mind, well, we're probably not there yet. This is just the entrance. But this little sense of panic inside of me because I can see a long way and there's not a tree anywhere. Where's the forest, you can ask the park ranger. And he'll, he or she will guide you to one of the outlooks ahead where you can pull off to the side of the road and see downed trees and logs that have become as hard as stone. Thus the word Petra, rock. Like Petra, Peter was the rock in the New Testament. This is not the forest of um, the Emerald Forest notion. This is not the forest of some great childhood adventure. There really is not a bush or a tree within sight. There's hardly any undergrowth or foliage at all. I think that the name actually is a perfect descriptor for how parents feel if they have built up their kids for this wonderful adventure that's about to take place trying to figure out how I'm going to explain to my kids that um, this is not the forest that they were thinking of because it's a little petrifying to respond to kids in that moment. Thank you. I do think, however, that this misconception, this... um, what feels like a misrepresentation may have been at least in part what the people of Israel felt like when they were given permission to return to their land, their promised land. If you recall, Israel divided into two nations, really, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom in about 722 B.C. was overtaken by the Assyrians, and they were taken off into captivity. And they are often described as the lost tribes of Israel, in part because they intermarried with their captors, and they lost their identity. 
the southern kingdom existed for about another 120 to 150 years, depending on when you date the timing of the northern kingdom's destruction and, and when do you date them being overtaken by the Assyrians. But about 587 B.C., Jerusalem fell and the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom and took the southern kingdom people into captivity. It was a little bit different than the northern kingdom in that the Babylonians allowed them to continue with some of their practices. They allowed them to stay together in their communities. They allowed them to follow some of their traditions and, in fact, carry on some of their practices of faith. And so, as you can imagine, carrying on their practices of faith, they carried on with telling the stories, the stories of the land from which they had been taken. They told their children and their grandchildren. They talked about it with one another in special meals. Oh, for the day when God might restore us, when we might be able to go back to the promised land, when we might be able to populate Jerusalem again, telling the stories of the magnificent temple, the incredible worship that had taken place, the beautiful places where they had lived, God's blessing upon them. I'm sure the stories were told again and again and again. For some, they had never been in Jerusalem, having been born in captivity. Others who had long memories would be the ones who would tell the tales. Well, King Cyrus, the Persian, conquered the Babylonians, and as a result of that, issued a decree that the Israelites could return to the land that they called their homeland, their promised land. And we are told that many of them returned, though they did not all return at once. And when they returned, it was not exactly like the stories. Not that the stories were untrue, but their place, their land, their city had been pillaged, had been trashed, had been in great disrepair. So as they traveled east on Interstate 8 and north through the Tonto National Forest and ended up landing just past Holbrook and entered into Jerusalem, what they saw was not what they expected. What they had envisioned was not what they were seeing. It was no doubt discouraging, frustrating, maybe angering, maybe causing some fear and apprehension. This was not what they had bargained for. And the thought of rebuilding the temple, they didn't have the resources that King Solomon had the wealth, the materials that were brought by other nations to honor King Solomon and all that he had accomplished, the ability to build that temple with King Solomon's resources was not their ability. All they brought with them was what they could carry for the journey as they made their way back to Jerusalem. And what they had for their journey was minimal because they were in exile. They were captives. They had very little. So the notion of 
rebuilding the temple to its previous splendor, it just was impossible. All of a sudden, the stories of the past began to fall apart. The hopes of the future began to dissipate. It was as if some of their thoughts and dreams were going up in smoke. It's into this setting that the prophet of Isaiah 61 speaks. And so the prophet says in 61, The Spirit of the Lord rests upon me, and I have been anointed by the Lord to proclaim good news to the poor, to mend up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captive, release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. This is language that would be familiar to them. The year of our Lord's favor would remind them of the year of Jubilee. In fact, that was how it was often described. The year of Jubilee, this very special time, once every 50 years. And on that 50th year, Prisoners would be released. Debts would be forgiven. Property would return to its original owner. It was a time for God to right the wrongs that had happened as a result of circumstances and and actions that were inequitable. It was a time of restoration and renewal. And that is the language that's being used by the prophet when he says, I have been called to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. This stands in stark contrast to what they are seeing with their eyes and what they are experiencing by their actions. It is as if the prophet is calling them to see with a new set of eyes, experience with a new understanding, because in proclaiming this year of our Lord's favor, He says, for your grief will be replaced with a crown of beauty. Your ashes will give way to oil of gladness. Your mourning will be replaced with cloaks of praise. And your despair, people will call you oaks of righteousness. And I love, for me, the culmination in verse 7. And your shame will will be replaced by a double portion. That language, a double portion, it has so many layers to it. One of the layers is that that was the language that was used to the firstborn. The firstborn who would receive a double portion of the inheritance. But it also speaks of something that is said earlier in this book where it says that the children receive a double portion of punishment for the sins of their ancestors, which seems incredibly unfair, very unjust. But here we hear the messages that are given through the prophet, the word of the Lord that says, that will take place no more, no longer shamed by what has happened in the past, but instead you will receive a double portion God's righteousness, God's goodness, 
God's grace to you. I really deeply believe that those who are followers of God are people who look at circumstances through a a lens of hopefulness. It's not just positive thinking. There are some people who are naturally positive. And this isn't just positive, wishful thinking. I think it's true of every follower of God that they have the ability to envision God's promise. They have the privilege of seeing what is yet to come. It is a hopefulness. It is grasping a hold of the vision that God has set before us. Because Scripture clearly states that without a vision, the people perish. With no hope, we're left with discouragement. With no sense of anticipation, we're left with simply the question, why? Why would I want this? But into this place, the prophet speaks and says, for those who are brokenhearted, there is mending. For those who are imprisoned, in whatever way you are imprisoned, there is freedom. For those who have got themselves captive by the choices or circumstances of life, there is release. There's a crown of beauty for those who are grieving. The ashes that come with such a sense of loss will be replaced by the oil of gladness, the oil of blessing. Mourning turns to praise. And your strength overcomes distress like an oak of righteousness. This is the inheritance that is yours. It is beginning to believe what God says is true, is true. I am so caught in time. I am dominated by what I see right now, by the things that I can describe and have been described for me in the latest cycle of news or my most recent walk through the city or my understanding of the circumstances of the relationships in my life. But God's promises move me past the immediate. They have to. It's part of expectation and hope. I mean, even even for Mary, who received the announcement of the birth of the Christ child, the birth didn't take place at the announcement. There was a delay of that promise, at least a delay of nine months to the shepherds who are abiding in the fields. The angels part the skies with this glorious announcement made to, in many respects, the outcasts of the Israelite people. They weren't held in the highest regard. This glorious announcement of a Savior being born, it's not as if in that moment everything turned upside down and yet for them, those who believed, those who took the message and grabbed hold of it, it did turn their life upside down. 
because God gave the message to those who are least in the class system and said, you are of the greatest importance that I would send my angels to you to proclaim the good news. And even with the birth of Christ, it's not as if in that moment all war ended, as if Roman, uh, Roman oppression disappeared. God's unfolding plan takes time, but the promise is sure. Christ's journey, 30 plus years, even at the end, we wonder, where is this promise going? But with a small band of people, men and women, who believed that the promise was coming to pass, was not bound by the circumstances that they had just seen, not overcome by what is now, but embracing that which was yet to come and claiming it as their own now. What if we believed that we were fearfully and wonderfully made? What if we believed that we were the temple, the home of the Spirit of God? What if we believed that if we begin to act like who we are, that the kingdom comes now in us and through us? What if we began to live as if the proclamation in the skies to the shepherd is the proclamation to us this morning. Sure, I can look out and see no trees in this place called the Petrified Forest. But as I began to look close, I see an amazing story. A story of a forest that was once there. A story of a forest, unlike most forests, that when climate change took place in the circumstances of that particular area shifted, these trees fell down and quickly became covered with sediments. That sediment blocked out light and air and oxygen, the kinds of things that usually cause great decay in wood, but it wasn't able to do it with those pieces that fell and were covered. And so minerals that were part of that sediment began to replace the organic material that was in the wood. And those minerals solidified over time and took on the shape of those logs and became rocks. It's really a national treasure. It's really an amazing story. Incredibly unique conditions that produced pretty amazing results. The name might throw you off, but it is an incredible storyline of time and what comes about with time. God's promise has not faltered. It's not been short-circuited. The storyline has not been stopped. It is a promise that we have received and is still yet to come. It is a promise that the prophet says includes a double portion. Have you ever had a wonderful meal at home and, and the best dish that's there, somebody takes the last spoonful or the last piece 
and you just think to yourself, ugh, I should have grabbed two, or I should have had an extra spoonful. There's none left. That happened to me numerous times as a kid, and some of my favorite memories are when my mom, seeing the forlorn look on my face, when she knew something that I wanted and there was no more left, she'd kind of catch my attention and whisper off to the side to me, don't worry, I kept some off to the side. It's in the refrigerator. You can have some after all the guests are gone. Yes, Mom, you're the greatest. I get seconds. And that's what this is. This is the Lord saying to us, this is your promise. You get seconds. I know you and I know your heart. What you see is not all that I want you to see. I want you to live into the promise. Live as if the promise can foresee you. Live as if the promise is in you. And when that occurs, the kingdom of God actually does come to earth in very powerful, unique, it's not just a matter of positive mental attitude. It is believing God's truth and then living into that truth. And that's what the table of grace is about. It is an invitation into the story. It is a proclamation of the promise. It is for us this opportunity to say, oh God, I falter because sometimes I feel a bit overwhelmed by what I see and what I hear right now. Forgive me, Lord. Help me with my unbelief. Let your spirit renew me. So this morning I have asked the pastoral staff to come and to Help lead us into this time of communion. To help us to um, prepare our hearts. We want you to know that it's an invitation to everyone who would like to come to the table of grace. You don't need to be a member of this church. It is just to say, is this the promise in which you want to participate? If so, in a few minutes, we will distribute the elements and invite you to come and take the elements and to hold on to them till all of them serve. You certainly don't have to participate, but we would love for you to do so. But I'm going to ask in just a moment for both the pastors and the band to come. I'd like to offer a prayer, though, for us as we step into these moments. Father, I thank you for the promise that is ours. Sometimes what we see seems like a misrepresentation of that for which we had hoped, and yet... There is a much bigger storyline here. You have invited us into these places where the brokenhearted might be mended and healed. Those imprisoned might be set free. Those captive will be released. Father, may our grief turn to a crown of blessing and beauty, our ashes to oil of gladness. 
May, Lord, our mourning give way to garments of praise. May our despair be traded in so that we might be called oaks of righteousness. No longer ashamed, no longer shamed, but instead, those who get second, Lord, a double portion of your joy. Thank you, Lord.